what did they say? Third time's a charm? More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachet, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Conscious Creator Show, where we talk about how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. And today's episode is with Vlad Magdalene. So Vlad is the founder and CEO of Webflow, a company that is working on empowering designers and entrepreneurs to design, build, and launch websites and applications without having to learn how to code. In a past life, he studied to become a 3D animator with dreams of working at Pixar but happened to fall in love with the power of programming for the web midway through art school. Most days, you can find him on Twitter yelling into the cloud about how no code is going to change the world. At home, he's outnumbered by two unstoppable daughters and an amazing wife who constantly remind him that there's so much more to life than growing the business bottom line. And um, one of my favorite quotes actually from this episode is something that Vlad said, which is, a lot of human fulfillment comes from belonging and purpose and connection and things that can't be qualified or bought with money. So Vlad has just an amazing story. He moved to the U.S. from Russia, and um, as an immigrant myself, I am always partial to immigrant stories. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about his early history, how when he was a kid, he began in graphic design as a teenager, helping uh design flyers for his dad's company on CorelDRAW, if, if you remember that. And the, the, the favorite part, my favorite part from this is how Vlad actually had the idea for Webflow in 2004. If you actually go on Twitter, um, which I'm going to look this up right now, while I am recording the, the intro, um, so you'll probably have this in the intro. But if you go on Twitter and if you go on web, uh, Vlad's Twitter, he has this thread pinned as as pinned tweet where he talks about how he had the idea for Webflow in 2004, tried in 2005 and failed, then got married in 2006, tried for a second time in 2007 and failed, then tried for a third time in 2008 and failed, had his first kid in 2009, 2010, he was still at his day job, 2011 had kid number two, and then in 2012, he tried for the fourth time and Y Combinator said no. And then finally in 2013, Y Combinator said yes, and they were funded. And really the hard work began in 2014. And last year, Webflow actually got funded for raised uh, $72 million in venture capital. So just the pure resilience and grit in going after an idea that just wouldn't go away, uh, man, I can relate to that as a creator. And that just is one of my favorite parts of um, Vlad's story. We also talk about raising funding, immigrating from the U.S., his experiences uh, working in corporate America at Intuit while trying to make this happen. And yeah, it's just this is just such a wide-ranging conversation on 
a lot of the early part of uh, Vlad's history that he hasn't really talked about. So without further ado, here's Vlad. Vlad, thank you so much for doing this. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and thank you for having us at your amazing offices. We're in this studio, which is expertly crafted. Yeah, our education team really takes their work seriously. Uh, I think they put in a lot of love into the set. And actually, I think like that's something I've noticed even in the way you talk about your company. And you've obviously like had this incredible journey of 15 years where you had the first idea in 2004. Mm-hmm. But before we dive into that, Let's start with how you sort of got into design in the first place. Because I know you said it's an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, my, so I maybe, I don't know how far to go back, but my family immigrated from Russia. We came here as refugees in 1991. Actually, I guess it was the USSR at the time, but it was already breaking up. But we came here and one of the things that that happened that seemed like a huge accident at the time was that half of our luggage was lost. So we landed in New York and then that was How our old stuff. were you? I was nine. So oh, wow. landed in New York. This is December, sort of winter time in 1991. That was a stopover, kind of did realize we lost a bunch of documents, uh, had to stay there for, for an extra day, get everything kind of taken care of on a, sort of a temporary basis. Then landed in Sacramento, which is where our sponsor family was. And once we went to the Sacramento airport, realized that half of our stuff was gone. And this is like our worldly possessions, right? And we didn't even have luggage. It was like these rugs that we had that my mom sewed into suit, like sort of makeshift briefcases or whatever. So half the stuff was gone. So obviously my parents were devastated until a day later, they found out that they're going to get paid. I think it was like $2,400 for everything that was missing. And to my parents, that was the most money they've ever seen. It's like, that's uh, a lot if exactly. you just immigrated. Yeah. And my dad, the first thing he did, you know, growing up in, in Russia, there were, we were always like 10, 15 years behind, like actual latest technology. The first thing he did was he bought a computer. I think it was an IBM 486 or 386 at the time. I don't remember. But it was like way before the days where you were counting like 200 megahertz in terms of CPU speed. But that sort of set up the original, like us having a computer was a, for my dad, like such a huge point of pride. And a couple of years later, he started working with some other guy in Russia to, to sort of like do these import-export businesses to to take something that was working in the U.S. and try to like, like ship it out to Russia, where which was just now catching up to all the technology that was outside of the USSR. Because the USSR had this thing where they had, because of like the way communism was structured, sort of like the protectionist way that they operated, everything had to be manufactured in, in Russia, right? Like cars, shoes, clothes, food, uh, you name it. So when the borders were open, like there's this huge opportunity for people to like start new businesses. So the thing that my dad started with was taking PVC pipes. So like these plastic pipes that, uh-huh. that Russians never heard about because, you know, everything was, you know, iron or bronze or whatever and make them available to Russian contractors. But in order to do that, you had to, you know, show catalogs to to those people and uh, have them have something to order from. So sort of like a halfway drop shipping business, I guess, what they would do is they would find American companies that were selling these pipes and they would make Russian language catalogs and send them over to Russia and have people order from there. And once they ordered, you would order from American companies sort of get the order and ship it over uh, to Russia. But in order to make those catalogs, you had to like actually make them, right? So my dad got a scanner. He got somehow probably illegally, a copy of Corel Draw at the time, which was like I the best. I remember using that, yeah. yeah. And Corel Draw came with these, um, 
with these massive catalogs like of that showed what things people were building with them. They're almost like the dribble of whatever it was, 1994, where you can kind of get inspired by what other people were creating. And when I first saw that, um, I was like, wow, this I can definitely get into this. And my dad needed somebody to make the catalogs and he just put me on the job. So what I would do is I would take these these catalogs and uh, scan them and just literally trace each of the pipes. There's like, you know, a 45 degree angle, then a Y, uh, sort of like a Y-shaped pipe that take, puts two into one. And that's the way I had to like learn by tracing, essentially learn the pen tool, learn like vector art, learn all these things. And like only later did I figure out that this stuff was probably trademarked or like copyrighted. Like I, we probably shouldn't take somebody else's uh, exact drawings and like duplicate them. But, you know, I was like 12 or 13 at the time. And and then that sort of led to, there was another business that that my dad was, uh, you know, because he, he was, had this interest in like fixing computers and setting up networks and stuff. He started working with a bunch of Russian companies in Sacramento, which was like had a growing Russian population. And one of those businesses were the, was the Russian Yellow Pages. And they needed a somebody who knew graphic design to create these ads for businesses in the Russian Yellow Pages. Uh, so that became my job. Essentially, I think I was 15 at the time. So this was definitely not legal. You know, there was no, it was sort of like under the table where I would work the entire summer there. And, you know, Yellow Page ads turned into business cards, turned, turned into, you know, like custom calendars, like the, all these silly things. And I think for my first entire summer that I worked there, I remember sort of close to the end of summer, it was an evening where the business owner, the guy who owned the Russian Yellow Pages, paid my dad like 250 bucks for the entire summer for all of my work. And my dad kept it all. Of course. <laughs> and yeah, it was sort of like, that was the immigrant way. You sort of, uh, but to me, that was one of my best summers. I learned so much in terms of, you know, having to figure things out on my own, just honing the skill, mastering that craft. Uh, and that made me fall in love with kind of uh, computer graphics and later on led led to me going to like visual effects and 3D animation and things like that. So I'm glad my dad sort of used me as free child labor. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story because I think you're right. Like there's that like immigrant way in that mm -hmm. where you just do what you have to do. Yep. And you support the family. Yep, exactly. I mean, we even later when I was 13, 14, kind of beginning of high school, our entire family would go and clean dentist offices in the evenings. And, you know, many times it was kind of embarrassing because like some of the staff was still in the office, but we had to do what we had to do. It was uh, like make sure the family can keep paying paying the bills or we didn't really have a choice. And I, I remember, you know, even though it was embarrassing at times, I remember just feeling like that was my responsibility. I have to play my part to make sure that that we can live this American dream. Yeah, um, I'm curious, like, in are there, like, common themes from those years and similar to, like, the years you spent just bootstrapping, like, lessons that were transferable? I'm trying to think. That's the first time I've had that question framed that way. Definitely the self-reliance applied where, you know, it didn't really have this thought of why can't other, other folks come in to help in these areas? Sort of had to figure everything out on my own. So I think that's that was kind of the mentality during that entire time of like, I can't, uh, I can't rely on anybody else, nor did I feel like entitled to anybody else's help. It was sort of like, this is my, my journey to figure out. And if it can be done, I'll, I'll figure out how to do it. Yeah. I think like, like I said, like those two things, um, one figure it out and like zero entitlement, mm -hmm. um, are such common themes with like immigrant founders. Yep. So fast forwarding a few years, I, I found this paper that you wrote actually, a user-driven web app framework mm -hmm. in 2006. 
tell us about that because there's a lot of things in there that like are almost like you're, you're sort of like predicting what Webflow yeah. is doing now. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was my senior project. And that was actually the culmination of work I started in 2004. And... So uh, zoom back a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I, I got into graphic design, but then my my dad sort of still thought that that wasn't going to you know pay the bills. So he convinced me to go to study computer science like my older brother. So uh, my first year of college, I went to Cal Poly to study computer science, but I, compl- I absolutely hated it. It was just a miserable experience. I ended up not really getting it, not really enjoying it. At some point, it was like decompiling programs to figure out how like this logic worked because it just didn't click in my brain. So I dropped out and went to uh, the Academy of Art here in San Francisco to study visual effects. Like that was a lot more my my thing where it was like direct manipulation. I could see the thing that I was changing. It was creative. You could get tutorials and, and sort of like tell stories, et cetera. And then, but then for various reasons, I, I did that for a couple of years, but the, the school was so expensive and the teachers were so bad when I got to the actual 3D animation part. Uh, you know, it was mostly students that weren't able to, students of that same school who weren't able to get jobs. They're just coming back and teaching. Exactly. This was back before it was accredited and I think it was the early days of of them taking on 3D animation. But anyway, for various reasons, I, I dropped out of there and went back to Cal Poly to Did study computer science. But go back to computer science? Yes. I went back to computer science, still hated it. So it was mostly a, I got to get a job at some point. This is kind of what you have to do. But at that point, I, I had sort of like a side little startup called Chatterfox that made me fall in lo- a little bit more in love with programming where I could actually create a product because uh, it was something that I created for my friends to replace a, a company that has sort of flamed out at, in the dot-com uh, bubble. So I had a little bit more interest in programming. I just didn't have much interest in computer science, like the logic uh, pieces, the proofs, the, you know, like all the things that you so, have to... So was it for you like always about like what it led to? Because it's interesting, like I actually also started as computer science. Mm-hmm. And after my first year, ended up switching to information systems because I was always interested in the human aspects of yeah. what technology could create. Yeah, I mean, that that actually what it turned out to, I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't realize why. I didn't like sort of the the tedious parts of uh, computer science because it was mostly like learning things that, that was like theory developed 20 years before, you know, how to create your own processor or whatever, like the real science-y part, right? But the thing that was kind of a saving grace for me was like very early into kind of going back to Cal Poly, I got a job or an internship at this web design agency. And they were working with some amazing clients, you know, it was like Apple and Quicksilver and Tennis Channel and HP and all these, uh, like a lot of big brands. And this was maybe late 2004, where my job there was taking like the design teams created kind of layouts and what they wanted to see the site and experience to be and translate that into their own like internal CMS. And that's where that idea for the user-driven kind of thing came from where, you know, I was doing the same repetitive translation work uh, day in and day out and being paid, it was like minimum wage plus $1, which was, I was really, really proud of at the time. And one time I saw an invoice for that work and it was like a huge amount of money for, you know, a couple hundred dollars that I was spending on it and like hundreds of thousands of dollars for what they were charging their clients. So that's when immediately I had that thought of like, holy cow, a lot of the things I'm doing on the back end to sort of create these databases, database tables to create sort of all the management code and all the UIs, I can create a visual UI to automate this stuff and put it into the hands of the designers and just 
essentially save all this time. Even if I was the one using it, it would save me a ton of time, right? I could just go chill after, <laughs> after right. I do this stuff a lot faster. So that was the original sort of inspiration. And, and I saw back then that it was, it could have such huge implications to, you know, the world at large, because there's just so much duplication and so much of this like repetitive translation happening in every single company in every single project that it just seems silly. Yeah. And that's sort of like what led to the the paper and correct, yeah. And even in the paper, um, to me, the most interesting thing was the conviction. So, like, my, I remember one of the sentences was, "Webflow can be a catalyst for a paradigm shift towards easier, higher level application development." Who? Um, wow, whoever wrote that was smart, <laughs> right? Um, I don't even remember that. <laughs> I'm curious, like, where that conviction came from. I think it's it's kind of. Um... Maybe it's a naive optimism, but just seeing something that can be better and realizing that it's possible, just sort of having like that unlock in your mind just makes it so obvious that it should be a thing, right? Let's say the first person who who saw the wheel rolling and saw how effortless that was just has a a revelation of like, holy cow, why isn't everybody doing this, right? Not to equate Webflow to the wheel, but I think that realization came very quickly to me of like, Here's an entire job that I'm doing that I can see in my mind how this could be expressed a lot better in a visual UI. I think it's very similar to probably the realization that people had when the first word processor was created, where it was kind of like, I can go, or even, I guess even the typewriter, like where you see the direct impact of what you're doing, you don't have to like go translate it again. And it just, you know, once you know there's a better way, it's kind of like, you so, know, so did you try and like convince your like fellow employees and stuff about it or? Well, that's when I, I, I think I had the, I had this sort of like conflicting conflict of interest where I wanted to create a product at that point. So late 2004, I was already thinking, okay, how do I create this into a product that I can then license to this company? Oh, uh, that you're working with. Exactly. So that they can save a bunch of time because I, I realized that the fact that they were charging hundreds of thousands of dollars for for these projects meant that they're, they'd be willing to pay something to speed up that process. So I already started thinking around like how, and I was sort of fresh off this, uh, creating this Chatterfox startup, which it wasn't even a real startup. It was just me and my best friend just hacking on something. We created this kind of WhatsApp-like asynchronous chat web application where, you know, you could like chat with your friends and, and all this stuff. But that was, I already had sort of like some startup dreams at that point. I thought that was going to take off and be like millions of users or whatever. Of course, that never happened. But I was seeing kind of this realization and, you know, writing that paper on Webflow. And the fact that I was able to actually land the domain at that time, like gave me all the confidence in the, in the world that this is going to be the next big thing. I just realized that's interesting that you've probably been holding on to that domain for Almost like 15 years and like, oh, like, yeah, now, that, it's like now it's being proved. That that domain was such a pain to get to because I was a, by all measures, a starving student, right? Like living totally on, on student loans and some grants and a lot of credit card debt. And when that domain, when I noticed that it was on sale, which I was just flabbergasted that it was even uh, for sale, I think it was like close to 10 grand. I did everything possible to sort of like send some shadow offers, some lowball offers from like various accounts. It was like Yahoo accounts at the time. That's when people used Yahoo emails. And eventually, I think I haggled it down to like 3500 or $4,000 or whatever and put it all on my, like maxed out my credit card. Yeah, and that was probably too much for you back then too. Uh, that, that was, yeah. I told my dad about it and 
he was like, what even is a domain name? Like, why, why are you, <laughs> you're already having, because, uh, you know, he was, he had to cover all of the, anytime I needed to borrow money, it was from him. And they didn't have much, you know, it was like uh, immigrants barely trying to make it. It was only my dad working. So for him, it looked like a really silly thing. But I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad I made that at the time, what was probably an irrational decision. Because to, to me, the name was so perfect for what, what I wanted to do with it. So. Yeah. You could do the thing that we worked at and license it back to the company. Oh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I have a little more moral scruples than that guy. Yeah. No, <laughs> that was pretty that. shady. Yeah. So, so you, you wrote that paper. You have the domain. And I think it took till 2013 till you actually raised funding, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so what did that period look like in the middle? <sighs> There's a lot. Uh, so 2005, 2006 is when I first tried to start, like around that time that paper came out. Like even I think the paper uh, hints at it was that I wanted to commercialize it. So I started, I started yeah. sort of the like... The line a, actually that I love is, I plan on pursuing this project full time yeah. upon graduation. It's right, like, It's exactly. like that conviction again. Yeah, that actually didn't happen. But I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story. So all through 2005, as I was sort of like working on this and working on the that kind of code to turn this into a company, I started kind of planning, all right, how is this going to become real right after I graduate? So I incorporated, it was like a sole proprietorship, you know, with like a doing, doing DBA, like a doing business as or whatever, had to file in the newspaper and all that and started coding furiously. You know, I was I was a straight-A student in high school. I was like salutatory and needed every single possible extra credit and every single AP class, et cetera. But during this time in college, I was just like, whatever. I just need to pass. All I care about is, you know, working on this thing. I'll need to graduate just so I get a degree, so all this is worth it. But I really didn't. I remember missing a bunch of classes. I just only went uh, as much as possible to just the tests, and I was just like cram for everything. I don't think I learned anything in those last two years. And then I fell in love <laughs> and I started driving in my, my girlfriend who would later become my wife of 13 years now was in Sacramento. So I would start driving back and forth and that kind of like took precedence. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> the school trying to get ready to graduate and all this work on Webflow took a little bit of a backseat, but I was still planning on graduate go full time, try to get some, you know, funding that by that time, like convertible notes were kind of starting to become a thing where it was sort of pretty simple way to get funded. But then the company that, so, so I built the whole thing in like .NET and C Sharp. There was a company that I based all the code on called Data Objects or something like that. They went out of business. So the entire architecture, everything that my kind of code relied on, just went up in smoke because I didn't have their source code, right? And since they disappeared, like there was not going to be any new version. So I had to essentially, and everything, it was so reliant on on their technology that it was just sort of, it was completely demotivating. And as graduation kind of came, came closer, I was, we were already planning our wedding and completely sort of like lost motivation to, to work on Webflow, just focused on getting married. And then because we we're getting married, you know, it was sort of like the standard Russian kind of expectation from both of our parents and from my wife as well. And for me as well, it's like, you know, you got to get a real job. You got to like provide and all that stuff. And whatever your startup dreams are, people haven't even heard of what a startup is, right? It was kind of... So you have to go for safety first, right? Exactly. Because survival is the first thing. Exactly. So I joined into it. I applied to a bunch of places like Microsoft and Google and Facebook wasn't really a thing yet, but... I guess it was, but it was like very early. Where they starting were, out, right? Yeah. It got rejected from 
pretty much all of them, uh, except for Intuit, and ended up getting in there on a pretty awesome team. I mean, it was a it was working on payroll. It wasn't super exciting, but it was a great team and a great set of people. So went there. We had to move up here to to the Bay Area because they, you know, that's where that's how companies work back then. I mean, still most companies work right now. Uh, so we moved up here and kind of forgot about Webflow for just a, a spell, and then about a year in. You know, working on payroll can only scratch that itches for so long. I uh, started thinking about Webflow again and and actually got a couple coworkers excited about it who were sort of in the same in the same boat of just having joined into it a few um, oh what was it like ten months ago at that point and so we started sort of putting together a pitch and doing kind of how we're going to apply to YC, how we're going to like do all this thing we got incorporated. And that's like YC early days, right? Very early days. This would have been the second year, so the third batch, third or fourth batch or something like that. I mean, they were they were already kind of like known enough that it was kind of like this magical, like it just seemed like this magical thing that sort of like very select group of misfits. And it didn't even seem elite at the time. It was kind of like... Just, this is different, but it's amazing. Exactly. It's it's sort of uh, this other set of geeks and nerds and computer science folks who just want to create amazing products and, and make things that people need. And so already had like those dreams kind of came back. So we got incorporated. We did the whole like Delaware C-Corp thing. We got a lawyer and applied for a trademark. And then bam, we were told that we can't use the name Webflow because like some company in Florida had it kind of booked for that same whatever it was class 42 which is like web services and, and websites and that was such a big hit for me personally of like okay here's this here's this thing that already for a couple of years like i've really been attached to the name like we're already making a website to launch this sort of the idea of the product or landing page to get people kind of excited about it and you can't use the name so that that led to a whole series of okay do we rebrand we made this whole like my brother, Sergi, who ended up being my co-founder the last time we started uh, Webflow, like the current one, he created like these 25 different logos for different uh, ideas. And we ended up with uh, calling it Marked Up, M-A-R-K-D-U-P, without a missing E because you couldn't get, get domain names at the time. And That's I was, the flicker period. <laughs> exactly. And I was so bummed out by that name that it just sort of didn't, uh, wasn't that interesting to me. And then, you know, the other guys sort of lost a little bit of steam because our day jobs got more demanding. And it sort of like fizzled out. And then the the job at Intuit got quite a bit more interesting. I actually put in my notice. I, I was like, I can't work on payroll anymore. I, I'll, I'm just going to, and my wife and I were talking about having kids. So uh, talking about moving back to Sacramento. So I told my my boss at the time that I, I want to leave and I'll just be looking for a different job in Sacramento. A part of me was thinking like, I'm just going to work on kind of web flow on the side, you know, like do do websites for clients and then kind of start redeveloping that same code base that sort of blew up when that company went out of business. And then something something awesome happened. Like the Intuit had this this cool thing called 10% time where you could like work on projects. And one of the things I was working on sort of on the side didn't really, I was really excited about it, but never thought it would be a, a big thing was this thing called Brainstorm which just a little was a little app I put together to uh, hook into the Active Directory for Intuit, which had like 7,000 employees at the time, and create sort of a, an idea sharing platform where, like, where people can sort of submit new project ideas and that would go like to management and they might approve it and, you know, fund it, et cetera. And one of the VPs at the company saw that I was leaving or wanted to leave and said, hey, why don't you just like you can move to Sacramento, but just work on this full time. 
Like, I just want to see this happen. Like, give it at least a year. And that was sort of like a magical offer because it was like, do the thing that you started and keep working on it. It's, it's essentially an internal product with no risk. Like, we'll keep paying your salary. You can work from home. It, work from home. It, exactly. So that took 100% of my attention. So I started building that. It was really exciting because it was like immediately thousands of users, right? Like a captive audience inside of Intuit, some like really important people, you know, like Scott Cook, the billionaire founder of Intuit was like using this thing and, and referring to it in like speeches and things like that. And then I sort of became part of the Intuit Innovation Lab team that kind of started to own this project. One of my co-founders from the like that second attempt of trying to start Webflow joined as sort of like a designer. I mean, he kind of had the for original the brainstorm project. Yeah, he kind of had the original idea for brainstorm, and uh, I was implementing it. So it just became really fun, and then kind of started focusing on full time. And then in 2008, about a year later, I kind of uh, still had this this itch of okay, I got to keep working on Webflow somehow. Like if if I don't, and by this time, like Weebly was becoming kind of popular. You know, there were a lot more, like Wix was huge, Squarespace was was taking off, but I still thought that something was like kind of that power was missing there, right? You can only do like templates and move some stuff around. Because this is like the front end, you don't have the back end application layer. Exactly. And even the front end was sort of like very limited, right? You could only pick a template and not really change much on the front end. Whereas me, if I was building websites and like WordPress or Joomla or whatever, uh, I had way more control because I knew how to code, right? I knew HTML and CSS. So I kind of started working on on Webflow again, just by myself again this time while living in Sacramento. So, so this is like attempt number... This is attempt know. number three. This was 2008-ish. Then really, really got into that. I thought I was going to launch that, like try to find another co-founder and uh, like launch it in 2009 or something like that. But then found out that my wife was pregnant. Uh, exactly. And like that really took precedence. And the day job working at Intuit Brainstorm got really, you know, more and more exciting because we we then hired another engineer who ended up being my third co-founder here at at Webflow, Bryant. Oh, wow. uh, so he was the first engineer, first other engineer on Intuit Brainstorm. You know, I kind of had the front end piece, he had the back end piece and the infrastructure piece, which ended up being critical for Webflow too. And then like, other co-founder from attempt number two joined as a designer. Uh, a couple other friends from Intuit joined joined the team. It was like the dream team, right? And that took, you know, then I had another kid and sort of like really, really focused on on that internal startup. And it almost got to the point where, I mean, we were making millions of dollars in revenue. I had some amazing, amazing clients outside of Intuit and started to like productize it. But for Intuit, it was sort of like small enough that it didn't really matter. And off-brand enough that, you know, they wanted to spin it out because it had nothing to do with like small business, had nothing to do with taxes, et cetera. It's totally understandable. So then uh, we tried to spin it out, but it was like not something that could get approved. And uh, essentially around late 2011, like we were kind of losing steam on it because, you know, it was already kind of, what was that? At least four or five years in into the product and People are starting to kind of like question, like if this isn't going to get more investment. Like, why is this being built? Yeah, exactly. It was sort of a a period of reflection. Like Bryant left to start another uh, startup called Vungle. He was the CTO there, and but I was sort of like settled. That's it. Like I'm going to be into it for the rest of my life because now I have kids. I I'm enjoying this enough that it's a it's kind of partly my thing, and there's quite a bit of autonomy, etc. And then out of the blue, in late 2011, I had moved two or three times at this point. So we applied for a trademark in 2007 
in the Bay Area. And then I moved to Folsom, then Citrus Heights, then Citrus Heights again in this uh, suburb of Sacramento. And like around Christmas time arrives a an envelope, like a hard padded envelope that has a, I kid you not, a trademark certificate that says, congratulations, you're the owner of like Webflow trademark for class 42 or whatever. So apparently there was some sort of like backlog, even though we were rejected, f- what was that, five years earlier? It somehow got into some queue, and then when the other trademark expired for this other company, whether they forgot to renew it or not, it was like this company, Learn.com, which still exists. It was sort of like, okay, something, you know, this is a sign that... Yeah, the universe is telling something, and and what a Christmas present. I know, it it was a... Like, I was confused why that would happen then. My wife's like, okay, something, you know, she could feel that... I'm about to start talking about, you know, uh, starting this thing full time again, uh, which was... How was her experience? Like seeing you sort of like try this thing multiple times and what was uh, her experience like? My wife's amazing in that she, she'll she support me through and through. But it's also, I think my enthusiasm is infectious enough that it could be like deceiving temporarily, like where I could paint a picture where it's overly optimistic. Like everything's going to work. Right? Exactly. It's that, and I fully believe it. Right. And therefore, I can sort of paint a picture to show like how this is going to work out amazingly well. And, you know, this is a lot of survivorship bias. It has turned out amazingly well, but it it didn't feel that way through some of the hard years, especially the first couple of years after we started. And then it was sort of like after that trademark came through, I knew I I just absolutely knew that I'm going to do Webflow full time somehow. But it was still sort of like back of my mind, maybe after into it, maybe after, you know, kids get a little older. And then early 2012, I saw this video, just somebody shared it on Facebook, like, thank you, whoever shared it on Facebook. And thank God I was still using Facebook at the time. It was like people checking out from Facebook, this video by Brett Victor called Inventing on Principle. And I, like it was a one hour talk. And the whole purpose of the talk is ask the question, why do you do the work that you do? Why do you, what is the principle behind your life's work? And it just so happened that a lot of the principles that he talked about in his personal life had to do with direct manipulation and like, how do you remove these translation layers from all kinds of tools like game design tools, animation tools, you know, electrical engineering tools, et cetera. And everything at that moment clicked. It was like, I was meant to see this video. I just went to this guy's website. His name's Brett Victor. The website is worrydream.com. And he had another paper called Magic Inc. about the creation of software visually. And it was like a really long paper, but I was just, I remember sitting in my in-laws, uh, sort of, they have this little like pantry room, just in the dark, like devouring this paper. The next morning I sent an email to my boss saying like, hey, I'm um, done. Well, I said, I gave three months notice because I was so critical on on the brainstorm project, but I knew like then that I was going full time and it's going to happen soon. Like I already started making plans to move to the Bay Area. It was like just clear as day that something sort of the the ideas behind this this paper that I wrote and as my senior project around the back end piece and about the user piece. And now with the front end piece of like visual direct manipulation, everything just clicked together and it was like, this has to happen. So I called my brother, convinced him to join and the rest is history. It's sort of like then just dove completely into, into Webflow, like cashed everything out, um, put everything into Webflow and off to the races. That's an amazing journey. And it's interesting, uh, that's actually the second time that um, Brett's thing has come up. Mm-hmm. Um, Sahil Lavinia, who started Gumroad, yep. also mentioned that. So I definitely think, go watch I think, that. I think Dylan at Figma also mentioned that it was a huge inspiration. 
if I remember correctly. And I've I've spoken to quite a few people and I've seen a lot of people on Twitter say that this video changed their life. And it's it's really it's not just for entrepreneurs, it's it's really like every creator should see that video. It, even if you never want to start your own business, it's just like thinking through the question of what is the purpose behind or the principle behind the work that you do is something that just takes you on another level of fulfillment, honestly. Even if it if it might mean that you question yourself in the short term, it might lead to some really amazing changes. Yeah, I think so many of us are missing that purpose from what we're doing, where we just like do things for the sake of it until we wake up and we're like, oh wait, what are we doing? Um, I'm curious, like what what did you find through that for yourself or what kept you going with this one idea for for this long? I think it was just the obviousness of it, right? Like, is that a word, obviousness? We're making it up right now. Sure. Uh, <laughs> remember, English is not my first language. Uh, and English is like a conglomeration of a bunch of made-up words anyway. Same here, brother. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I think it was just this blind conviction that this better way needs to happen. It's very similar to, you know, once you once you realize the benefits of... I don't know, electric cars, and you just want to make it happen. Or once you realize how, name anything, name any technology or any practice that just, let's say, I don't know, Justin Kahn talks about this a lot, the power of meditation, for example, for for him. Once you realize it, like, why not make it happen or get more people to uh, follow that practice? It's almost like becomes a philosophical, nearly religious thing of like, this has to be true. Like more people have to experience this. I think for me, it was sort of that of like seeing uh, how obvious this was in other creative fields like 3d animation nobody questioned it right like when visual effects was first becoming a thing you know during like the star wars era etc when people used to ha- know all of these tricks like you physically had to perform visual effects and film them with a camera right and like sort of trick the camera etc and uh, then you know we started making 3d movies like toy story etc and it was kind of a, that was a very highly complex task because you had to understand matrix math and you had to be one of these like technical directors and programmers to really understand how to like get 3D shapes to sort of reflect light the right way and animate the right way, et cetera. But it was sort of a foregone conclusion that that was too hard for people to tackle. So we created way more ergonomic and way more accessible software, like 3D animation software to solve that same problem. Same thing with game design, right? Like there's hundreds, if not thousands of, of game designers and level designers that originally were like expressing this stuff in code, you know, like the corner is here and then two feet later or two units later, like the next corner is there or whatever. We converted all that to much more intuitive level building systems. And now entire games are built with logic and stories told through like these visual interfaces that don't require code. So once I had that realization that What's really different about front-end development and back-end development that that makes it not possible? A lot of people had this sort of like limiting assumption that because there's so many edge cases with with software that it must not be possible, therefore it's not worth exploring. And because there were, there were past attempts that failed, like Dreamweaver and Hypercard and however, Visual Studio, how far, uh, however far you want to go back in time. But I think people had enough data points in their head that like this is not worth exploring. But to me, it was like, this is so freaking obvious, you know, knowing that, knowing how I'm doing this work and knowing that I can sort of chart a path in my head of how I would create a, a, you know, a more visual and more natural abstraction for that same work. It just made me believe that it was, it just had to, had to become real. Yeah. Uh, and we'll actually link the whole thing in the show notes. It's, it's really interesting. Um, 
you have all of these diagrams where it's like, yeah, we're cutting on this part, we're cutting on this part. And, and this is my favorite line, which is, the behavior can be defined by those directly employed by the business and not expensive consultants. Like the early days of the web, we were cutting out the middlemen. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it was just the obviousness with which you saw it was like really clear in just that. It's funny because I was the middleman. And there's also kind of this assumption that empowering more people to create software visually will work programmers out of a job. That's not true at all. Like it's it's kind of like uh, it was the same assumption that was made when spreadsheets were becoming a thing. A lot of programmers back in the, you know, Fortran, Pascal, uh, COBOL days would think that if we're not doing the financial modeling, then, you know, our jobs are in danger. But because that you know, a paradigm like spreadsheets unlocked that computing power to, you know, billion plus people didn't mean that those people lost their job. They actually got to uh, work on much more interesting problems, whether it's in computer science or uh, like algorithmic stuff or creating more complex applications, et cetera. So this whole this whole shift towards like no code software development will actually explode the demand for code based programmers because it'll mean a lot more software and a lot more like sort of edge cases that visual tools won't catch up to for a while. So that's I think those mindsets sort of like were limiting a lot of people and thinking that anything in the space was possible. But to me, it was pretty obvious that there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, and I think it's sort of like jumping around a bit on what you said. Um, one of our friends, Eric, talked about it recently where I think the no-code tools are almost um, kind of like looking ahead to the future, um, mm-hmm. unlocking a different class of founders yep. on sort of the biz and the product side because they don't need Yep. They're not limited by the, the tech stack. So can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a story through the history of computers, right? Every time we have a new layer of abstraction, it unlocks a new, not just, originally it was a new class of programmers, right? When you had to think of zeros and ones, right, there was a certain type of programmer that that mental model was accessible to. And then when we added assembly languages a little closer to English, you know, more people were able to grok that. When we added higher level languages like C and C++ and eventually Java, that took a lot of the complexity away from uh, engineers having like map memory and figure out exactly how like register, which registers are holding which uh, piece of data, et cetera. By removing a lot of that complexity, you actually open up that skill to orders of magnitude more people, right? Like in that case, more programmers. Just like when you, when Amazon, AWS, and like all these cloud providers abstracted away the ability to use hardware or to get more computing power in terms of like just get more machines, it unlocked a whole set of programmers to like worry about higher order problems than how do I order servers from Dell and rack a hard drive that fails and reconfigure RAID and install Linux and and whatever. So all those problems went away, and that means that people can focus on uh, higher order problems. The same thing happened with Ruby on Rails, where you had a certain class of programmers that knew exactly how to build an entire application, like bootstrap their own database and write all the SQL, et cetera. And Ruby on Rails got rid of a lot of that complexity and said, here, just describe an object. We'll scaffold out all the kind of skeleton for you. You only add the custom things. Sure, there's like a lot of, you know, that's the on Rails part. There's a lot of conventions where you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We'll sort of handle authentication for you. We'll handle like the database piece for you. And that unlocked a whole new range of, you know, startups that were created in that era, including GitHub, including Airbnb, including even Twitter, where it was sort of like, Focus on higher order problems, focus on your user, et cetera, but you still had to develop the software. And no code is just another evolution of that. It's hiding even more of that complexity 
and bringing the vast majority of the knowledge work to the solving the actual problem. Like, how do you define the user experience? How do you define like the logic of what happens when somebody performs an action? And ultimately, that's the part that's like not automatable, like the part that interviews users, the part that understands the problem, the part that makes sure that everything has like an elegant solution, not necessarily the, the code architecture of how everything fits together. That unlocks way more people to have access to to even even consider creating their own product or service or or whatever. So it's a I see it as a orders of magnitude type of accessibility unlock where it just means that it's kind of like just overall literacy where the fact that we've taught a lot more people how to write and read and the fact that we people now have access to self-publishing like there's a much fewer checkpoints that you have to go through like you don't have to know a publisher anymore you don't have to have sort of like this insider knowledge in order to get worldwide distribution you kind of have to have original thinking and like something that you can market and you you still have to do a lot of hard work to do that but a lot of those barriers and a lot of things that you no longer have to learn are no longer a constraint. So that's how I see no-code tools. It's like uh, now founders who are way pre, you know, having access to engineers or not engineers themselves or can't afford, uh, like can't get funding, uh, but want to validate an idea. We're getting so much closer to them being able to just get their products or services out into the world, even in like a more limited degree than what they would be able to do with code. But for many, it's a difference between like, being able to do it or not being able to do it at all. Not like it'll be slightly slower with engineers or whatever. They yeah. like literally can't afford that uh, that luxury. I think it's also, we're almost looking at this like ushering of a new creative revolution on the web. Yes, 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 yes. And, and as you said, like in that case, like, like as the tools get abstracted away, it's more about just like the things that computers can't do, right? Like being creative and all of these things. And I think one thing that's super important in that is the mental game. That never changes. And even for you, like, through all of these years, like, I'm sure you, or actually I've seen you talk about how you had to like borrow money and like, mm -hmm. deal with credit card debt and stuff. What did that mental game look like? I mean, it's, it came in peaks and valleys. There were definitely some times where, this, so late 2012, this was six months, uh, around six months after f founding, like I was at a point where you know, it ran out of money, um, had enough for three months. And I thought it was, you know, we're going to make this Kickstarter and make a bunch of money and, you know, then build a product and start generating revenue and we're going to bootstrap forever. And it's just going to be myself and my brother and, you know, building this uh, amazing product, et cetera. Like definitely rose colored glasses. And then six months later, I was already probably $50,000 in credit card debt. My daughter needed surgery. We had like catastrophic uh, health insurance. You know, my wife and I were talking pretty much nightly around like, is it worth it? Like, when are we moving back to Sacramento? This is not, this is not what we, either of us signed up for, honestly. That was hard. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even claim that I had it kind of put together at that time. Like it was literally every week on the verge of kind of giving up and I mean, not totally giving up. I still thought that if, if I was to stop working on it full time and go back to Intuit, which was an option. And I was super privileged to even have that ability to sort of think like, hey, if everything else failed, I knew I could get my job back. But that that definitely, you know, there was a lot of mornings where waking up in cold sweats and like panic attacks and, you know, didn't know how to explain. I had to put on a face of like, everything's going to be fine, you know, for my wife and kids and, and for my uh, co-founder. But like, I knew how much money was left in the bank, which was not that much need to, needed to sort of sell cars to make ends meet, convert cars that we own to leases so that, you know, you get 
like a couple thousand dollars and or a few thousand dollars in the bank and then that pays for rent for another month or whatever. Absolutely not something I would recommend to anybody, even starting today, to make those kinds of decisions. So there's caveat that there's a lot of survivorship bias here, right? Like uh, many people take these same steps, but it doesn't work out the yeah, same way. Yeah, it doesn't way. work out, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, and, and I think it's, it's funny because the founders listening that are like you are going to listen to that and still do it. Because I think that it's just probably something in the DNA, maybe. Right. <laughs> yeah. So 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 you're going through that. Um, when like what was that first moment where you're like, oh, this is going to be successful from there? I think I had a lot of those moments where they felt like this is going to be successful, and then a week later, I was like, that was not what I thought it was going to be. And when we incorporated in September 2012, and got one of like the most active like Kickstarter video creation people like it was this freelancer guy that's made a lot of kickstarter videos when he agreed to work with us i was like oh we're super like you know he's really selective yeah he's really selective and probably just came down to money or whatever and then maybe a couple months later even after we knew that kickstarter was going to like reject our video because they didn't support SaaS services we had this application to YC and we thought like for sure in, in a demo and once I saw that demo kind of put together and we made this video I was like okay this is like 100% going to be a thing you know of course like two weeks later we got a rejection email saying that they didn't want to talk to us then in March of 2013 we finally put together this was like our last ditch attempt to put a demo up on Hacker News you can still see it today it's playground.webflow.com uh, sort of an idea for what Webflow is going to be it was an, an actual product that took off. It was number one that entire day. I felt like we were on top of the world. Then that that felt like a huge win. But then all of those that like really peaked and then just sort of like really slowed down. Then we sort of used that to apply to YC. And we had a whole, there's a whole story online on TechCrunch around like how we applied, then went through the interview, then got a phone call that we were accepted. Then a half an hour later, got an email that we were rejected because Webflow's too, like the reason that they gave was Webflow was too hard for beginners to figure out, but not powerful enough for professionals to figure out. So that was like that whole roller coaster of like, oh, we're in and then we're out. You know, there's a mistake that was made. Um, And then finally, when we got in, it was like, it felt like, okay, we made it forever, right? Like, of course, if you get into YC, then you're golden, you know, you're going to get like a bunch of money and investors are going to flock to you or whatever. That definitely didn't turn out to be the case. Like we, we, that three months was like a real big grind of like trying to build a product. And then we went up on demo day and it was a really hard slog for us to raise money initially. Some companies didn't end up raising at all. Some companies raised like massive rounds well before demo day. So we sort of felt like we were really behind the curve. So then when we raised a little bit of money, it felt that, okay, at least we're, it was feeling a lot less of a seeing these over and over kind of thinking that the next milestone is going to be like the thing that's going to put it, put the stamp on Webflow is going to be around forever. I was starting to see that every milestone is, is still like, it feels less and less certain. So after we raised that round, I think the, the real answer to that is probably a couple of years later when the first month where our revenue equaled our expenses. That's when I knew that we were in control of our own destiny. Like 
if all else failing, right, outside of all of our customers like canceling, that's when I knew that we could just, without additional venture capital, without additional like other people having to say like, hey, I believe in this, it was only up to us and our customers at that point to like build a lasting business. I think I think that was truly the moment, this was like late 2015, where it felt like, okay, this is a lasting business because like from now on, we're default alive. Like no matter what happens outside of like some, you know, black swan event, or us really messing up, right? Like really stopping to care about our customers and shipping new features or whatever. That's when I really felt, okay, this is going to be a thing. So it's like reaching that profitability. And I remember reading, I think you'd raise like half of what you wanted and then you called PG and he was like, that's enough. Oh yeah, we actually didn't even raise half. So we wanted to raise a million dollars coming out of YC because that would seem like on the low end of what other companies are uh, raising. And we had a really tough time. Like we found one investor uh, pretty early on that gave us uh, around 200K and then a couple smaller ones. And it was just a lot of investors were sort of like on the fence. They're like, oh, I'm not sure. And kind of taking a while to get back. And we were doing so many pitches. I think it was like 60 or 70 pitches across 40 days or so. And eventually we were kind of like burnt out. Like I literally weren't working on the, on the product. Like uh, user growth was kind of tailing off. Um, my brother, co- uh, sorry, my co-founder Bryant and I like, kept doing all these, you know, I kind of had to bring him in for emotional support because I was like overwhelmed doing it myself. Even though the the usual advice, startup advice is like only one founder should be doing it because it's like a big distraction. And so we had like 300K or so around, maybe 350 around that point. And we had a meeting with PG and, and just said, this is really tedious and we're kind of like losing losing motivation, et cetera. He's like, look, there's three of you, there's 350K, like divide that by three. Over the next year, you're going to get to some revenue. So just go focus on your business. Focus on the product. Uh, you'll be fine. And that was enough of a kick in the pants for us to tell all of, all of the investors that we're having, you know, like these conversations with that weren't closing that, hey, we're, we're done. Like this is, uh, I think we have what we need. And all of a sudden sort of the floodgates open. You're like, no, 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 wait, wait, we're just. Uh, it's like they want what they yeah, can't have. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of, we, we ended up raising 1.4 in that sort of flood of investors coming in and some were some really, really large checks. So getting back to work after that point was a huge relief because we knew we had, but we were still kind of operating at that time, kind of like every other Silicon Valley company where the thought process was you got to spend that as much as fast as possible, hire as fast as possible. Uh, you'll have to raise again a year from now, et cetera. But thankfully how hard, like the difficulty of raising that first round was enough that I didn't want to do it again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so we started focusing pretty early on, like, how do we get, how do we make sure that this, this money lasts so that we don't have to kind of go through that painful process again. So, so it almost like got you on the path of like profitability because you want to be in control of your own destiny. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, like how hard the first round was definitely a catalyst to, to thinking about how do we make sure we don't run out of this money. Mm-hmm. And then, so from there, like obviously like Webflow has been successful and you raised a, Another big round recently, which you've talked about it with Harry and 20 Minute VC. Mm-hmm. I'm more curious on the side of like this sort of like common theme and like how in terms of like leadership yep. and um, parenting and also like working with investors. Like mm-hmm. what are sort of the common themes you're seeing in that? Because I know you touched on it a little bit yeah. in that episode, but. Yeah. One thing that I guess there's there's three big things. One, what I really believe in when it comes to both like parenting and leadership of a company and how like investors partner with with companies is this whole model of servant leadership 
Like I'm here as a leader in order to serve, like I'm here as a parent for my kids to make sure that their, their needs are met, right? Like there's a certain mental model I grew up with in Russia where it was like, you have kids for like free farm labor, basically. You know, the more kids you have, the more you can sort of like scale production. Because uh, we, <laughs> we were, I mean, we were all living in, you know, it was like sustenance farming. We had our own well. There's the only thing that would, came to the house was gas. You had to get, you know, heat your own water. There's no electricity. It was, it was like really outhouse the whole thing. And thinking about servant leadership when applied to all three of those is, to me, it feels pretty magical in that like you're really there to support the team or your family or if you're an investor, like the teams that you support, not in a directing kind of way, like, hey, I'm, I'm here to get my needs met and you're, you know, you're a quote unquote a resource to make sure that that happens. But I think something magical happens when you think of your team as like truly your team as a, like a shared group of people with a common purpose, et cetera. And then you dive down one, one level deeper. And if you're truly trying to aim to serve whoever that like what whatever group or mission that that you're trying to serve then to attract the best people to make sure that they do their best work you have to give them autonomy you have to give them a chance to master their crafts or, or what they want to do and you have to give them like this sense there has to be a shared sense of purpose around why why that work is important and i guess the same thing applies to to parenting where it's I don't want to tell my kids exactly what to do. I want them to learn by themselves. I want them to have uh, take on more and more autonomy over time. I want them to like really get good at whatever they want to get good at, right? Like something that gives them fulfillment and gives them a sense of impact. I want to make sure I'm not, not in the way, supports them as much as possible, uh, opens up avenues, like looks at sort of like sees the world and sees opportunities that might might help them and and presents them. And I think great investors do the same thing for companies. You know, they're not there to command and, you know, be a boss. They're there to support and guide and, you know, be a true partner. I think great managers and great leaders do the same thing for their teams where they care like deeply about the individual needs of of their team members. And they also care deeply about the the overall like shared impact of their teams and, and the sense of like purpose and fulfillment and all that kind of, I think there's a lot of books that where people sort of examine their lives at the end of the day. And, and one of them that I read recently was How Will You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen, I believe. And, and there's like a TED talk around this where a lot of people will measure their sort of impact based on how much do they drive revenue or how many like high growth companies do they work at or whatever. At the end of the day, honestly, a lot of human fulfillment comes to like belonging and purpose and connection and things that like can't be quantified, can't be, uh, can't essentially be bought with money. And I think that that common set of set of like seeking closer connection, seeking like personal uh, seeking to help others, seeking to bring value into the world. And and that bringing value into the world feels so much better when you're doing it with an amazing group of people because the sum is usually a lot greater than the parts, right? When you get like, you know, a great engineer and a great designer, a great product manager into a room, like what they can do together is probably way, um, way outsized from kind of like what each of them can do individually. And I think that's the same for like a family. It's the same for... Uh, just a group of friends or, you know, a team, like you mentioned, Eric, right? A team of investors that are that are trying to help uh, other companies succeed in their mission. So there's just a lot of commonality there. And I hope that, that that trend keeps continuing, sort of like a focus on people, a focus on like connection and fulfillment. And of course, like the outcomes of that matter a lot. Like, 
you know, what are you able to achieve as a company, as a business for your customers, et cetera. But that almost always comes as a sort of a trailing indicator. Like that's the result of, of that great like team cohesion. And, and I hope like we move further and further in that direction rather than like, you know, the purely capitalistic, like here's a kind of growth at all costs. Let's, yeah, let's... there's almost this like, I think like conscious um, revolution happening in, in tech with like yeah. Justin at Atrium and, and Jerry Colonna's book Reboot. I think that's, that's really good. So you, so you did raise a lot of money this year, mm-hmm. 72 million. I'm curious how that felt like after like almost like 15 years after having that idea, now you've got this big investment. How did that feel for you? Honestly, we're not really changing the way that the company operates. In fact, we're kind of slowing down hiring, believe it or not. We're, we're kind of building the foundations of making sure that the company scales into being a huge force for good and, and, and change 10 years from now, 20 years from now, et cetera. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't like this huge watershed moment. I think it was great to see the outside world recognize what we were doing in such a sort of public and invisible way to bring validation to like the things that we were saying seven years ago and even 15 years ago. So that, of course, felt great, but it didn't mean sort of like a fundamental change to how we operate the business. Like we still want to make sure that we're growing sustainably. We're still not having to, like we didn't have to raise this money. We want to make sure that we invest very strategically into things that were harder for us to afford before when we were um, kind of relying just on our on our balance sheet and our customer revenue, but do so in a way that is like really thoughtful where we know that's going to not set up the company for having to kind of go down this path of perpetual raising machine where you, you have to keep relying on investors to make sure you stay afloat. But I think the biggest, the by far, the biggest kind of intention and so far output from from this raise has been how do we get the the power of visual development and, and the power of no code into a lot more hands quicker because for us it's such a, a big component of our mission not because it it leads to like a larger company or more valuable company or whatever but it honestly means more people are making a living or are able to create products and services that they otherwise couldn't have and that is a you know such a fulfilling thing when we get emails and letters and like postcards that say hey, I, I make a living based on this platform now, or I was able to create this agency and now we have like 12 employees. Yeah, there's uh, like Webflow consultants now. Yeah, exactly. I was able to get this product that I had an idea for up on Product Hunt and it was number one for the entire day and I could have never done it without visual development tools like Webflow. And that feels like a responsibility that we have to try to get that out to as many people as possible because it like... There's no downside to that. There's really no downside to that. It's only upside. It's like creation of of value and wealth for other people. And and it just like feels like we have the sense of responsibility and urgency to get that into more companies, more entrepreneurs' hands, more creators' hands, so that they're able to like find out sooner that they don't have this like barrier in front of them. And sometimes like even today, even with Webflow, I'll be honest, like there are still a lot of like technological barriers where there's a lot of things you can't do with Webflow on its own. There's still a lot of things that you have to like tie together a bunch of different tools. You have to add code in many different places. But that's the whole goal of of this fundraise is to make sure that we remove more of those kind of things that Webflow doesn't have yet sooner so that we don't have to wait two, three years until we're able to uh, afford to do that later. So it's like a strategic bet that by 
partnering with somebody who's done it before, who's like uh, helped many, many different companies scale in a very thoughtful way and in a way that really respects the values and uh, principles of each company and uh, like really doubles down on this product led idea where product is the thing that that uh, leads to the most adoption. That was sort of the perfect set of factors that that made us kind of go down down that avenue. And so far, it's been working out amazingly well, partnering with Excel, especially. Yeah. And, and one thing when we were talking about the the value creation, just thinking about is like how like when Bill Gates started Microsoft, their mm-hmm. thing was they want a computer on every desk. Yeah. And the amount of value or the computer in every home mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the amount of value that's created. Um, yep. And I'm just thinking like we can get to a point where every person on the planet can use the power of no code tools. Yeah. What value does that unlock? That's such a huge question and and not one that I even pretend to pretend to know the answer to because already today, when you go to like the Webflow showcase, when you go on Product Hunt and see things that were built in Webflow, you go on all of these, uh, you know, there's now tons of no code sort of directories to show like what people have built with it. A lot of that stuff is surprising today. Like there's a, um, just recently there was some, a person that built a kind of a, a scholarship matching service on Webflow and Zapier where it just means that students are able to discover scholarships and get them much sooner. And it's it's like the butterfly effect, right? Like this person was able to create this service and this company now, or it's, it's actually a nonprofit, but now I think it's a nonprofit. Uh, and now students who benefit from this might 10 years from now say like, this is the, like, because I discovered this scholarship in this, uh, you know, no code app, they might not even know that it was built with no code. It doesn't really matter. Right. But the fact that that exists in the world means values being added. And it's not a zero sum game where it's like a fixed pie where because people are now able to create this value uh, using a visual tool that somebody lost out. Right. Or somebody, because really it's, it's a matter of an, an agent, software agency can't say, oh, well, because that happened, we weren't able to get this $25,000 job that would have built this application or whatever. That person would have never been able to pay $25,000 to develop that that software. So it's like new consumptions, like new, the, a new ability to create. And it like that to me feels like a just the beginning of a renaissance of all these ideas coming coming to bear and coming to to market, even if they're super silly. I've seen some things like there's like this lawyer website that was uh, just like the most ridiculous thing ever, but it's it still adds value. It adds entertainment value, right? And somebody created it because they don't they don't need to know how to write code anymore. So it removes a massive barrier. So the next five years are going to be just the next year alone is is going to be uh, really interesting to see how this hockey stick keeps uh, you know the the curve gets even steeper. Yeah, uh, in terms and Webflow is almost like just like acting as a facilitator for all of those different ideas now. Yeah, that's what we're, we sort of saw a gap in, you know, no other company was kind of taking this mantle of, you know, no code leadership or visual software development. And, you know, just a, about a month ago, we did the first no code conference and brought a bunch of these companies together. We're hoping to do more next year. But yeah, it's it just uh, feels like, somebody had to take that banner and and kind of yell into the void around its benefits. Uh, and there's still some detractors. There's still a lot of people that were skeptical, rightfully so, in, in many cases. But now if, like the last year has definitely felt like the scales have tipped to where the detractors have now become more like, more in sort of the 
fringe hater category, right? And the vast majority of Vivian developers are like, okay, there's a lot of merit to this as an abstraction. A lot of ways that this can benefit software engineering in general. Mm -hmm. That might be almost uh, the best place to end. I have one last question, which is, so 15 years ago, we saw this idea and mm -hmm. now it's entering mass appeal mm -hmm. uh, and you see it happening, right? I'm curious, one, like, how does that feel? And, and two, like, how do you feel you've evolved through that journey yourself? Ooh, that's a loaded question. It feels incredible. It's an, it's a, it's a privilege to, it's a huge honor to be able to kind of look back and say what I imagine happening was you know, one thing, but this is 10 times better, right? Seeing the the impact that this has had on the world and it's still, you know, very early days. How, how this impacted me, I mean, I used to be this, I still describe myself mostly as an introvert. Like the first thing I want to do is go hide in my room and like read a book. So for me, it's been just an incredible decade or at least seven years uh, now that I've been doing Webflow super actively for the last seven years of personal growth and like expansion way beyond my comfort zone. For half of that time, I thought that, you know, my entire life was defined by my, like my entire worth was in like the code that I write or in the kind of like the architecture that I set up for Webflow, the application or whatever. I never thought that I would step away from writing code because that was the, when I started Webflow, I just thought it was going to be coding all day long, all the time for the next many decades, just working with my brother. So it's it's led to a lot of, I think I would define my job, especially over the last three or four years, as doing the things that I hate the most, right? Or like the the things I'm least comfortable with, but having to do them anyway. And over time, developing a an appreciation for the hardest parts of leadership, like really, really diving into things that I used to avoid all the time, like having hard conversations, like giving, uh, kind of helping people grow into into leaders and 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 really taking some uh, hard stances sometimes, like, you know, things I never imagined around talking about social justice and, and really seeing uh, a lot of unfairness in the world and like systemic injustice. And I never imagined myself being vocal in any of those uh, areas. I always sort of like stayed out of conflict and stayed out of uh, saying anything controversial. Um, but I think over the last seven years, especially with this whole kind of Brett Victor idea of how will you what are the principles or what is the purpose of like the the work that you do? And, you know, we all have a very limited amount of time here on earth. And I will also say that I'm extremely privileged in order to even say this because a lot of people, it's perfectly fine and it's uh, absolutely acceptable to have like your job be a source of income and that's it, right? Like where you don't have to have this like uh, made up passion or, or whatever. I'm kind of in, in a position where I can, I can sort of lean more on that to give myself a bigger sense of fulfillment. But yeah, I think I've completely changed as a, you know, in, in kind of my mental state, even sort of uh, thinking through being like freaked out about everything and uh, everything is wrong. And I'm, you know, an imposter and uh, the most terrible CEO in the world. And I don't know how to lead people. And uh, I'll, I'll never be able to find uh, kind of, something that I'm really great at and, and accepting a lot about myself, a lot, including all of my, a lot of my weaknesses and, and just really trying to, to focus on, on the strengths and realizing that everyone is probably going through the same journey, right? Everyone's struggling with something. Everyone has uh, things that they're really great at and just giving myself permission to like enjoy this life and, and focus on, on people and relationships. Cause those are the things that you really can't mortgage for too long just because you're like you focused on the next 
Series B or whatever, those things are kind of, at the end of the day, pretty superficial, even if they uh, help move your business along. So for me, it's kind of been this uh, gradual shift towards higher level like more fulfilling thinking, at least for myself personally, and in a more longer term perspective, rather than a everything is wrong and how do I like stack up to these other people? And maybe that's just a, like a function of getting older, but it, it has felt more and more like really doubling down on things, I believe, really speaking up for the core values that I hold true and the principles that would feel bad for me to compromise on. And that has led to some hard conversations, uh, uncomfortable conversations at key junctures. But over time, like you just feel a lot better around like the way that your your life shapes up or the impact that that I can have. But it's also like just the beginning of the journey. Like it feels like there's still so much stuff that so much growth that I'm still going to go through so much change and so many things I still am really, really terrible at that. It probably lets a lot of people down. So the next 10 years, we'll see, or the next seven years, we'll see how how that shapes up. But I'm really optimistic about it. A lot more optimistic than I even was three years ago and seven years ago. It's And I think a huge part of that is just seeing the external validation of like the things that people say, what Webflow has meant for them, including people who work here in, in what kind of working on a mission like this, working on, on something that is uh, bringing a lot of value into other people's lives. And I find that very, very satisfying. And I hope that that keeps uh, kind of that that trend keeps continuing into the future. Yeah, I'm I'm super curious to see what the next seven years will bring too. Where can people go if they want to follow along the journey? Uh, I, I love your Twitter. I mean, for somebody who has a company all around creating websites, I probably should have a website. <laughs> but I, Twitter's sort of the the only place I scream into the void. That's not sort of like the internal Slack at Webflow. But yeah, you can follow me at Twitter at Call Me Vlad. And we'll we'll have all of that linked up. Thank you for doing this. It's it was really fun to just sort of explore your journey from starting out, and maybe we can do this in, again in seven years. Yeah, absolutely. If years. not sooner, it was yeah. a blast. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. Bye. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.